Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us on the program. Uh, we're going to jump right into our conversation with our very special guest today. And it's a subject that certainly uh, does provoke a, a certain amount of conversation, which is what we're all about here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And uh, we're going to be talking today with a very special guest. He is a, uh, I guess you'd say DDS, a dentist. His name is Philip Buckler. And we're going to talk in part about uh, what's been labeled a mask facts, mask science, the hierarchy of evidence. But we're also going to talk about the whole issue of um, the facts. Just give me the facts, ma'am. And uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, where you're getting your information and so forth. Uh, Philip, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. I think that uh, this is going to be a very interesting uh, conversation. Yes, thank you, Richard. I'm excited to be here. Now, first of all, let me let me say that uh, based upon <clears throat> what I saw and heard in the news media in February, March and April and beyond of 2020, I was absolutely astounded at how many epidemiologists there were in the media. It blew me away how knowledgeable these people were about whatever was going on with the pandemic. Uh, did that kind of strike you as rather interesting that all of the sudden these news anchors and reporters and journalists all of the sudden became epidemiologists? Yes, it was particularly surprising, especially given how how knowledgeable they were about a bunch of other subjects <laughs> prior to that. And bear in and mind, how they suddenly developed this epidemiological knowledge. And bear in mind, when I make that comment about the media, I'm talking about all of it, not just one side. I'm talking about the left, the right, the center, the up, the down. It didn't make any difference. There were people who were spouting off saying, well, I know because I've researched and I've done, so I have a good, and I'm sitting here going, the last thing I'm ever going to do is claim uh, that I'm an epidemiologist or that I have any clue as to what's going on. Uh, if I catch this thing and it takes my life, hey, it was my time. That was that was the, my departure date from this world. Okay, you are not an epidemiologist, correct? That is true. I am not an epidemiologist. Okay, uh, you are a dentist, and yep. uh, you've been practicing for how long? Uh, Ten years now. Okay, why dentistry? Yep, in because you and I both know. I'm sure you know the statistics. Uh, the high rate of suicide uh, amongst dentists. Um, I've heard that, uh, although I've also heard that psychiatrists have it worse ah. in terms of that. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, um, what I find so interesting uh, in our day and age, when I, when I use uh, obscure, um, in my history, historical references, and uh, I'm thinking young people are listening, I'm saying, folks, I'm not going to explain it to you. Go to Google, okay? Google it. All right. Uh, Google reel to reel, Google cassette, <laughs> mm -hmm. Google copper pairs, um, because I don't have the time to explain it and uh, and so forth. But when we're talking about trying to understand a certain situation in our lives, be it a pandemic, be it an earthquake, uh, hurricane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or just the daily life. Uh, the Internet seems to be the go-to place. It used to be you would go into the, your, your library, your den, uh, bookcase in your home, and you would uh, go 
through the Britannica and look for uh, Hurricane H, H, ah, H, and you'd pull out the encyclopedia, and that's where you would basically look that up and kind of get more information. We now have millions, if not billions, of sources. First things first, how do we determine the information that we're getting is, I don't even know if the word accurate is correct. Well, you would want to look for internal consistency and in how well it explains what you're observing in the real world. I, I think that would be first, but uh, at least in my case, what I did was I started going to the primary source material and then digging through those and then the references cited by the primary source material and then pulling all those and going through those and then the references cited by those references. So that was that's why I feel qualified to talk about masks. Okay. Uh, it's just it's a very narrowly focused topic within the field of epidemiology, which most epidemiologists, in fact, I don't know of any uh, masters in public health uh, courses or uh, or degree programs that actually offer any classes devoted specifically to masks. It's just a very narrow niche topic. Well, it is indeed. I'm curious, did you do any research regarding the Japanese who have been wearing masks when they go out and about for decades? I didn't research the Japanese in particular, but a lot of studies that I came across were done in Japan. And what were the results of those? That masks made no difference. <laughs> and that's consistent with the experience in 2020 and 2021. Okay. Someone might say, okay, well, if masks don't make any difference, then why wear them in the operating room? Why wear them when uh, you're a dentist? Well, they're good against splashes. Like anything that you can physically see, they actually, they're, they're useful that way. But the question is, does that make a difference in terms of respiratory viral transmission or bacterial transmission in the operating room? And that's a separate issue. I mean, the whole habit of wearing masks goes back to the late 1800s when germ theory was still in its infancy. And some, and it, a lot of I guess, rituals developed around uh, infection control and doctors and scientists are no less vulnerable to ritual superstition and habit than anyone else. Uh, some might be a little bit less, uh, less willing to admit it, but that particular habit, the habit of covering your face in the operating room just came about as part of that, as part of that trend. And when you, we actually do have studies that were done in the operating room. Uh, there's a, one pretty solid randomized controlled trial done in Sweden, actually, uh, by Dr. Tunaval back in the early 90s, that they used the same hospital, same building, same patient pool, same providers, uh, same techniques, same years. Uh, and they found that even in the case of bacteria, which are about 10 to 100 times the size of viruses, masks made no difference in post-operative infection rates. And that was, that was consistent with a bunch of other lesser-sized studies, like Webster's study in the late 90s, which looked at post-operative infection rates for bacteria. Same deal. Um, you, you, they put out culture, culture plates, cultured bacteria in the operating room, found no difference when the operators or when the patients were masked versus unmasked. And apparently we just forgot about all that research. Hmm. Well, what I find interesting is that people back in February, March, April, uh, when they were asked, they weren't mandated necessarily, but they were asked to mask up, wash up and step back. That was my phrase that I would use to, to encourage people. Uh, they did it. Mm -hmm. They did it. 
Yeah. And my belief, this is a belief, has no f- basis in evidence. My belief was back then that if we had, as a society, done what we were asked to do, we would have been done with this in three months. Three months. But because of the resistance by individuals who feel that it is their constitutional right, and I'm not judging them, I say you have the constitutional right to do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want, okay? But I ask you, in that context, what about what it says in the preamble about preserving, promoting the general welfare and preserving the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our children and their children and their children? And it has been also shown that if you catch this virus, it's going to have long-term impact on your health until you die if you don't die from it. So I'm curious, how do you balance those two di- uh, those two concepts? Well, I'm glad you actually raised that because th- I don't think that got enough consideration early on. A lot of people just, a lot of people's take on what to do and how to handle this was based, it was based empirically off of whether or not masks work, but that's only one pillar on what gets you to everyone should wear masks and everyone should do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mandatory masking is it's supported by two pillars, the empirical pillar, whether or not masks work and the moral pillar. And oftentimes the moral argument for masks, people just kind of jump from, okay, these work to everyone should be forced to do it. And that's, that's a solid non sequitur. And oftentimes people didn't even consciously realize they were kind of making that jump, both people who opposed compulsory masking and people uh, who favored it. And I would simply argue that, well, there, there's a variety of moral reasons not to mandate masks. Uh, one being that there's a legal principle uh, called duty to assist and specifically no duty to assist in this case. And it's, it's the difference between mandating that someone does not do an act of commission, uh, a negative act of commission, mm-hmm. or a positive act of commission to benefit someone else. It's the difference between forbidding someone from actively harming you and mandating that they do something that actively benefits you or might benefit you. And that's even assuming that asymptomatic transmission was a major driver, which I would argue that it was not. And the evidence still isn't there that it wasn't because we still have mandatory masking for everyone is not a it's not a narrowly tailored focus because you can just isolate the symptomatic and that's been that's been kind of the standard practice in epidemiology (laughs) ever since people saw that their neighbors were getting sick it's just the theoretical possibility that someone has an asymptomatic virus and could theoretically transmit it doesn't mean it's a strong likelihood And you can actually get a pretty good idea of what the odds of any given person that you run into in your area carrying asymptomatic, uh, potentially lethal COVID are Mm -hmm. simply by looking at the percentage of people that have been detected as new cases and looking and tracking that for the last 10 to 14 days, roughly multiplying that percentage by the by the odds of asymptomatic transmission, which we actually have data from uh, in a number of good meta-analyses. I'm particularly thinking of Madewell's 2020 and 2021 meta-analysis and Thompson's 2021 meta-analysis, which found that essentially asymptomatic or 
a better way of phrasing this would be that symptomatic people are six to 20 times more likely to transmit COVID than asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people. And then you just multiply the likelihood of actually dying if you get COVID. But as far as the long-term effects of COVID, I looked into that too, though not nearly as rigorously as I looked into the studies on masking. And I have yet to find any long-term effects from COVID that have not been documented for other viruses, adenoviruses, rhinoviruses, influenza viruses, enteroviruses, uh, you name it. Well, let me ask you uh, about uh, this this concept I've been promoting for 40 years. It'll never happen, although who knows, maybe now, now it will. Uh, grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, probably was given a f- when the first flu shots came out, I might have in school, I don't recall, uh, but I haven't had a flu shot in probably 40 years or more. Won't get it. Don't need it. Don't want it because I'm, I'm supporting and fortifying my immune system uh, with the things that it needs uh, to, to, uh, be, uh, to be fortified with. But I have been promoting that when the influenza hits the United States, I've been promoting shutting down the airlines for two weeks, two weeks, just two weeks. Stop people from moving around. Stop the spread. Okay. And then at the end of the two weeks, go back to normal and you've stopped it dead in its tracks because that's primarily how these things are spread is be people coming in contact with people. This has nothing to do with masks or washing your hands or staying six feet apart. This has to do with just normal everyday life pre uh, pre COVID era, as I like to call it. What are your thoughts in that regard to saying, look, uh, you know, people and by the way, when I would promote this. They would say, Richard, do you have any idea the economic impact that would have on our society? Well, post-pandemic, I'd say little or none. Okay, we're talking two weeks. That's all we're talking here. And then it's done. Because here's the other side of this coin, uh, Philip. The lost level of quality productivity within the workplace, if we choose to continue to believe that the economy is the first and foremost element that we must preserve in order for our society to survive. And maybe I fall on the side of the moral arguments rather than the the scientific arguments, because I'm basically, I'm 61. You know what? I'm only 61. I'm sick and tired of all of this. This is absolutely insane. Uh, Einstein said it the best. Uh, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And with the pandemic, we did something different. Now, we don't know what the outcome will be in the the end, but we know it's going to be different because we did something different in 2020. Your thoughts in that regard? In terms of the... I guess you could say that the the airline idea is a narrowly tailored lockdown, although in this case, it doesn't seem to have worked because other countries tried that. And there's at least 20 to 30 studies out now, which suggests that there is no correlation between the infection rate of COVID and the stringency of the measures imposed by countries to uh, stop the spread, essentially. So I simply simply treating everyone as though they're infectious or a particular or a particular group of people as though they're infectious until proven healthy it's we we used to see that as as not being a as not being a rational or narrowly narrowly tailored response 
as far as um, transmission, it sounds like you're not referring to transmission on airplanes because there actually have been studies on that too. And COVID transmission on airplanes is no more uh, no more likely than anywhere else. Well, and what about influenza and other, and other transmissible diseases? Other transmissible diseases? Yeah, tuberculosis, influenza, um, any others that are communicable? Well, a lot of the studies that we're relying on to uh, gauge uh, in the efficacy of infection control member, uh, measures versus COVID were done on tuberculosis and influenza. And the there is some evidence that say like an N95 quality mask is useful for uh, bacterial uh, disease like tuberculosis, but even that isn't nearly as strong as most people, most people would suppose. And as far when it comes to respiratory viral infections, uh, that just it's it's not simply a lack of evidence. It's surveying the area where you would expect to find the evidence and then finding nothing, which then constitutes positive evidence of a null hypothesis. Okay. So uh, if I'm correct, um, I, I, I hope I have the terms correct, uh, the plague, typhoid Mary, and so forth, these were airborne, right? Um, no. Typh- the plague, if I recall correct. You're referring to the bubonic plague, right? The well, I'm actually death. referring to to You're some of these uh, population uh, uh, um, <laughs> decreasers, as uh, Scrooge would say. It is best to decrease the surplus population, and so on and so forth. Uh, that had that were affected by airborne diseases, and the question more goes to: so, if they had had masks or had that knowledge. Would that have even saved any lives whatsoever, or would we have still lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, during those particular outbreaks? Well, public health measures and individual hygiene measures, if we'd known how those, me- if we'd known how those diseases were transmitted, that would have saved lives, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but in this case, I mean, it's kind of funny that the <laughs> that you should mention that because in my recreational reading prior to 2020, you come across some interesting things in the history of plagues. And one of those is failed public health measures. For example, if you're talking about the Great Plague in London in the 17th century, uh, the public health establishment there assumed that the plague was being carried by dogs and cats. So they actively went after all the dogs and cats that were killing the rats that carried the fleas that actually carried the plague. So in that case, um, I would argue similar to the last couple of years, the public health measures implemented actually made things worse. Uh, It was intuitive. There was a, in fact, this actually reminds me very much of the regression to the whole masking thing in 2020. There was a theory of disease transmission called the miasma theory of disease transmission if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. which is the idea that bad smells can transmit disease. So when you're looking at diseases that are transmitted, say, in water, like cholera, uh, and there's a really good uh, book on the uh, cholera outbreak in London that killed thousands. Uh, and again, the public health establishment thought that this was airborne, so they were just uh, pouring bleach and a number of other products in the streets when it was actually carried in the wells. And a, a very smart doctor actually did the legwork to figure this out. Uh, but the official public health line did nothing to figure that out. And cholera, you get rid of cholera in this case, not so much by vaccination, but by improving the quality of the water. Mm-hmm. So a uh, question that comes to mind, and I'm sure some from some of our listeners is, is the advocate, uh, if, if this is a, if this is even a word, the advocation, 
<laughs> advocacy? Uh, advocacy uh, is are basically are we saying, hey, let's not do anything. Let's just not do anything. Let it run its course. Let it run. Let it run its course. Uh, and um, here's here's another element, though, to add to that in terms of letting it run its course. I remember that there was a, a study done in uh, June or July of 2020 on those who had died in New York, specifically New York City, on those who had passed. And of course, these bodies were all in refrigerated cars at that time. And the report came out, and I found this interesting, this is what I want to kind of bring up with you, is that 99% of those people who had been labeled having died of COVID, quote unquote, only died because the virus exacerbated their pre-existing conditions, be they heart disease, diabetes, or whatever the other conditions might be uh, that they had. And what I'm getting to is this, our population here in the United States, let's stay local in that regard, is so, and, and the studies from what I understand have gone to prove this, our society is so unhealthy, overweight, obese, with all kinds of diseases, that if they catch the common cold or even the flu, the influenza, as, of course, statistics have shown, people do die of the influenza. They die because of their underlying conditions, because they don't have a strong immune system to fight them off because it's been compromised because of the medications that they take, the foods that they eat, even maybe the environment in which they live and so on and so forth. So if we choose to do nothing, some would claim that that would be uh, the term I think would be called culling the herd? I think culling the herd would have to imply more of an active role <laughs> as opposed to just letting intelligent individuals decide on their own what their priorities are in terms of quality of life. Okay. Uh, but that does kind of get back to, I think, some of the some of the implicit moral assumptions made by both sides uh, that let them make that leap from, okay, masks do or don't work, and then jump straight to they should be mandatory or they should never be mandatory. And a lot of those unspoken moral assumptions, the moral arguments, those, I think a lot of those were just kind of assumed as or taken for a given by mm -hmm. both sides. And I'd love to see those uh, enunciated more clearly. And that's what I've been trying to do in addition to the to the whole empirical issue, because the empirical issue is important. But if uh, if we just look specifically at whether or not masks work, for example, then we're just going to wind up repeating the script the next time enough people in the public health establishment or in the public in general are convinced that if enough people do X, that it will benefit everyone. Mm. And then they'll just want to push that X on everyone else as well. So do you th I'm curious as to whether or not uh, some other safety measures that measures that have been implemented on the public at large across the country in other areas of their lives. Oh, I don't know, like seat belts and obeying the traffic laws and um, uh, doing the right thing in business in terms of not employing children, uh, you know, like under the age of 18, you got six and seven year olds and there are regulations against that now. That's why regulations began because businesses refuse to do the right thing 
Uh, there's there's a part of me that says, okay, if uh, th- there's a part of me that wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, look, if this is the direction that we're going as a society, then why why the rules? Because you and I both know where where you live, where I live, and I I ran I, not literally ran into this just getting to work today. People doing whatever they wanted with their cars on the road without using the turn signal, which you're supposed to let people know what you're doing so that they can then compensate and so on and so on and so on. And it just, it's like, it, it seems, and I'm not saying that we should adhere to what our government on any level is telling us, you know, without, you know, testing it in some fashion. And I, again, that's where we want to go next. But it just seems like we're we're becoming... A, a lawless society because, okay, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. I'm not going to do all of the other things that the government is telling me to do. And it seems as though that's the rhetoric. That's the opinion. And there's, I know I read something that, that was sent to me about that. That's the opinion of people that they, they, they basically feel as though they're fed up with, with being told what to do. And it's like, but you're always being told what to do. Your employer tells you what to do. You can choose to do it or not, which means you can choose to work there or not. So look, can we talk a little bit about that? In terms of, uh, say, for example, um, traffic laws or I guess, dress codes, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, just across the board, because people, you know, I mean, I've never understood, for example, um, not that there, I mean, there are obviously laws about destroying public, private property, public property, rioting and so on and so forth. I've never understood it. I've, I was cheering like you would not believe when my uh, Phoenix, uh, Arizona D-backs won the World Series in 2001, but I wasn't tearing down the house I was living in or my neighbor's. I, I, I've, I, it's like, how is that productive? How is that celebratory? You're destroying the neighborhood that you live in. You're destroying the livelihoods of people. And this is just one example. But people are just losing their minds over all of this stuff. And I know that this pandemic has been going on for a long time. And people have been asked to do an awful lot for a long time. But I keep reminding people this is still just temporary. This is not permanent. Um, so it's 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 more like it feels as though we're losing our grips on our own social morality, if you will, when we go to exercise our individual rights. Uh, there are those who say that what happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C. was just a it was just a bunch of tourists and I've watched the video over and over again. I've never seen tourists walking through a, a museum breaking things like windows and doors, I, you know, and, and again. But this is this is kind of where I'm going with this, because that's kind of how this this whole thing with the mask in particular uh, has, I think, in a good way, raised this conversation that you and I are having. Yeah, and I think I think the analogy between property damage and um, and kind of raising property damage and say the seatbelt laws, for example, uh, as a parallel are helpful. I personally see the seatbelt laws as kind of a foot in the door that made the masking a lot more palatable later on and the masking a foot in the door for other measures. But as far as the property damage goes, 
when you're talking about ownership of property, the right of exclusion and the right to preserve that property is an essential component of property. But the difference between, say, masking or forcing someone to undergo a particular procedure or take a particular intervention or ensure that their immune status is up to a certain level against a particular disease, it moves things from not just the, okay, you have to refrain from actively damaging my property to now you have to act as bodyguard for my property. Or, okay, the fact that you you have to build a fence around your property to keep people from going, to keep a wild animal from going through your property to get to my property. Hmm. And whether or not that fence is actually effective in preventing the wild animal from jumping from jumping properties or causing new problems. That's a, that's an important empirical issue as to whether that measure is warranted, but it doesn't really speak to the, why should a third party or my neighbors or your neighbors get to dictate what you do with say your house, if they can derive some tangential benefit from it, mm. it there's a difference between saying, okay, fine. You're not allowed to erect a nuisance fence just to block out your neighbor's sunlight versus okay, you have to optimize the aesthetics of your yard because it benefits your neighbors. Mm. I mean, or if because... I want to burn my house down, I should be have, I have the right to do that as long as it's not, uh, not uh, threatening uh, other structures uh, outside of my property area. That's a good question. And honestly, I'm not familiar with the law on that, but I think there actually is legal precedent for, for that. Isn't that uh, behind the whole standard of controlled demolitions? <laughs> it probably is, yes. I assume so. By the way, I've seen some pretty bad controlled demolitions. Uh, I go to YouTube every once in a while and I'll pull up the failed demolitions where they're, uh, for example, they're trying to bring down a high rise, uh, maybe 20, 15, 20 stories, and they only bring down half of it. And I'm going, who is going to be the... Uh, Who's going to be the one to go up into the what's remaining <laughs> and oh, yeah, set wow. off more, more explosives? <laughs> it ain't going to be me. Sorry. I think I'd yeah, send a drone. Yeah, that, hopefully that's an option now. Yeah. <laughs> that does sound like a fun way to unwind, though, at the end of the day. <laughs> Philip Buckler's my guest. Bill, Philip Buckler, DDS. Uh, uh, do you have a particular specialty in dentistry? I just consider myself a general dentist. Okay. I like, I like doing the basics and I also really like being able to refer to specialists when I know that it's something that I don't think I can necessarily get as good a result on for my patient as another doctor that I know. So being able to refer to say an endodontic specialist for a second molar upper root canal, that's got five canals and you need a microscope to get back in there and see or a dental microscope, I should say, not the, not the light microscope that most people think of that sort of thing. Or if you see wisdom teeth, that are full bony impactions hanging out over the inferior alveolar nerve canal space. Uh, sure. Those are the ones that I want to refer to an oral surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I love the terms you're using there. I didn't understand any of them, but I know what you're talking oh, dear, about. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's okay. Oh, no, I'm no, no. I... <laughs> Okay. I'm glad I kind of at least gave you a visual uh, idea of what I was going Absolutely. After. Well, I was 21 years old and I had, uh, I, ha I was to have my wisdom teeth pulled so that I was, while I was still under my parents' insurance and mm -hmm. uh, I went in and they were going to pull all four. Then they mm -hmm. found two impacted teeth and they said, well, we can either pull the impacteds out or we can pull the teeth that they're supposed to go into out, putting the uh, impacted teeth in position, and you'll have to wear braces for about two years. 
21 years old, male, uh, <laughs> wanting to date and all that kind of stuff, and I opted out of that. And uh, hindsight being what it is, 40 years later, I wish I had done the braces because I wouldn't have a busted baby tooth uh, uh, today. I'd also probably have straighter, lower teeth as well. But that's another subject for another time. I find it interesting, too, that, um, uh, you know, I was I was actually looking for uh, the quote that I read just a few minutes ago uh, in regards to. um, Well, I'll tell you what, let's talk about something else while I look for that. I want to talk about a couple of. Of other issues as we continue our conversation here. You have uh, several, there are several things listed here. Confirmation bias uh, is yes. one of them that, and also, uh, and, and I want to talk a little about, about that uh, motivated reasoning and cognitive dissidence. Uh, also the um, propensity, I love that word, for people to look for what confirms their belief and ignore what contradicts their belief. In the broadcast field, uh, Philip, we call that an echo chamber. And yeah, that's the extreme form of it. <laughs> yeah, and I have to tell you, uh, I, I now I'm going to ask you this quick question before we move into this a- area of confirmed bias. In 1980-81, I think, maybe it was 81, the FCC was deregulated to the extent that not only did it eliminate the third-class license I was studying for in broadcast school, I was so upset. I wanted that big certificate on my wall. But it also eliminated a doctrine that required broadcasters to cover issues from as many sides as is possible, two at the minimum. That doctrine was abolished. It was, it was taken out. Now, some would say, well, yeah, the government's telling broadcasters what they can and can't talk about. No, it's not. It's saying with the fairness doctrine, you need to be talking, you must talk about an issue from multiple sides so people can make up their own minds. And I personally believe that's what was the birth of echo chambers that have been a disservice to the public ever since for 40 years. Your thoughts as to whether or not a broadcaster, a radio, television, or even Internet for that matter, and FCC does not regulate at that level to the Internet so people can have all the echo chambers they want. But what are your thoughts in that regard? Do you think that we should not have the fairness doctrine and you should be able to just go off and just say whatever you want? Or you think it should be a more balanced conversation? Fox News used to promote themselves as fair and balanced. They're anything but. Uh, Christian Radio that I worked for for 15 years was anything but fair and balanced. I tried to do an interview with a guest, two guests, when the state legislature of Arizona was looking at debate, they were debating a bill to give gays equal rights. I wanted to have a member of the pro and the con. And the guy on the con side, who was a Christian, said, oh, I'm not going to give the devil equal time. Says this isn't about giving the devil equal time. This is about having a conversation about this subject. So what are your thoughts? Well, that's a good question. I'm definitely not qualified to talk about the history of the FCC. Uh, my own 
personal thoughts do tend to be much more along the lines of uh, let people say what they need to and figure out what they and figure out uh, based on which sources of information they choose, as in leave the confirmation bias with the individual who's seeking out the news sources. Uh, that being said, uh, I can understand the fairness doctrine and why it might have been seen as being necessary, especially for, say, uh, governmental funded um, <laughs> government funded uh, media organizations and the well sometimes even with the fairness doctrine in place if you look at uh, stuff say uh, the media companies know where their funding is coming from they're not dumb and so you know you notice that oftentimes the official sources that are funded by the government whether it's the Canadian Broadcasting Company or the BBC or even back in the 1980s, uh, I, I remember listening to a Romanian commentator who was uh, saying, "Yeah, they would just they would just take the party line of whoever was in power, and they'd flip on a dime." So, the fairness doctrine sounds like a good idea, but I question how well it worked out in practice. And I am actually familiar with some of the uh, news organizations of the 1800s because that was part of my recreational reading. And uh, those definitely weren't uh, weren't part weren't participating in the fairness doctrine. So uh, some political parties, uh, especially during the early to mid even to late 1800s, were run by political parties, and it was openly known. So people got their news sources from where they wanted. Even a century ago, it was just done a little bit differently. Yeah. So it's I don't know if you can really eliminate the confirmation bias on the individual level. Uh, and the question would just be, I guess the best you can do is just let, is just not try to squelch the people who are saying things you disagree with. And that would, that would be, that would be a hill that I would see as being worth dying on. Just if you, you can't force other people to say what you want, but they also can't force you to stop saying what you want. What do you think about uh, adding one caveat to that? What about the responsibility for what you say? They say you can't self say fire in a crowded movie house. That is a that is a, not a constitutional phrase you are allowed to say. I mean, that's at least that's been the the the, the traditional example. Okay, you can you have the First Amendment right of free speech, sure, but you can't scream fire in a crowded movie house. Well, yeah, I mean, it obviously doesn't extend to saying lies. Uh, interesting that you should raise that uh, objection because I actually, in my research for this over the last couple of years, I actually pulled that legal case and read it. Uh, that was about a year ago. So the I'd have to pull it up precisely, but the popular quotation is not quite the same thing that the judge wrote. And okay. the nuances there were actually uh, were actually. Uh, changed the meaning essentially hmm. it's yelling fire in a crowded theater and causing a stampede that's still not ah. a precise quote but that's closer to the original so they recognized that nuance and that it the harm caused yes but at the same point in time it was There, there's a difference between actively trying to instigate something and saying what you believe to be true and what you can defend on at least somewhat rational grounds mm -hmm. and trying to trying to censor people based on the based on the harm that they cause by by what they're by what they're teaching. If you if you accept that standard, then a lot of stuff would not be allowed to be taught and it would vary from year to year depending on who is in power. That That is true. Uh, and there's no real limiting about, principle after that. Yeah. What about this aspect of it, though? What about one's personal responsibility for what they say? 
because it could, it could, and probably has over the years, over the decades, the centuries, provoke mm -hmm. someone, an individual, from taking physical action towards the person who was saying whatever it was that they were saying. I mean, we know that this has happened. I mean, because people will say something and someone will shoot them. They will stab them. They will hit them. They will fight with them. I mean, we see, <laughs> mm -hmm. we see this yeah. at sporting events all the time as far as fights breaking out, especially in Europe at, at, at uh, soccer games and things of this nature and rugby. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, instead of the friendly rivalries that we'd like to think of where you can go to a game, you can wear your team colors, he can wear, she can wear her team colors, uh, but you can sit there and enjoy the game and root for your team and win or lose. Hey, it was a fun game. And that, that sounds like a topic that I've, that I've barely touched on in some ways, <laughs> personal responsibility. Definitely. It sounds like you're referencing the doctrine of fighting words, which I don't think is currently in the law at the moment, but was at some point. And that was one of those things that I made a note to come back and follow up on later because okay. the, that's, that's a very good question. The extent to which an individual's uh, what obviously people are responsible for what they say, but the, extent to which they're responsible for what then happens is something that I think is still being legally adjudicated and may never quite be completely legal, legally adjudicated. For example, if you're, I mean, if your friend says, oh, hey, I found this great stock, why don't you invest all your money in it? Uh, and you go out and do it and you lose all your money. Well, obviously that's kind of your friend's fault for giving you bad information, or maybe they were sincere at the time. Uh, but at the same point in time, how much can you then turn around and sue them for that or ask for legal redress? And I would say probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, well, there's also due diligence. You, you, if you don't do your mm -hmm. due diligence and you just trust that friend of yours, first of all, yes. I don't think they're a friend anymore. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, at that point, you would have to question how sincere they are. Exactly, exactly. Or, or why you're still listening to them. Or but why you're still... They probably have a history of giving bad <laughs> advice at that point. Now, I know that primary source material or information is key when it comes to doing research. I read a book. Uh, when I was working for the Christian Station, I interviewed a gentleman, and his name was John Noe, N-O-E-I, N-O-E. He wrote a book called The Apocalypse Conspiracy. And what he was basically saying was that Christendom had been uh, taken down a primrose path. They'd been lied to because of the research he did. Now, the research, research he did was going back as far as he could to the primary source materials. They had to be in English because the man did not speak Aramaic or Hebrew and so forth. Um, and I read his book and I found certain proofs and I didn't want to sit here saying, well, you know, Philip, uh, John said, uh, in his book, blah, 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 blah. That's secondhand information. Okay. So I took his book and I went to certain sections and I put out my Strong's Concordance, which I have to, uh, you know, I have to say, okay, that's, I'm going to have to accept that as, as a primary source because I don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic either. And my Bible, and I'm going to look up these passages, and I'm going to look up the definitions of the words. And I began to do this research on my own from what he had written, okay, to mm -hmm. see if what he had written was really true. And uh, what I found was what he found. So now I am coming from what I'd like to think is primary source information, 
But mm-hmm. how many people are willing to do that? You obviously were because that's what you've done. You've sought out primary source information as much as is possible, right? Yeah. And it takes a lot of time. Oh, it does. It's, <laughs> how, oh, difficult, it's, I, how difficult? I gave has up it all been? hobbies. I, it's, I, I, I didn't spend nearly as much time with my wife as she deserved. It was, um, there, there's a price to pay for doing that kind of information and for doing that kind of deep dig. And nobody has that kind of time to become an expert on, on every, mm-hmm. on every subject. And most people aren't going to have the time to even do it on one narrow field like masks. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, you have to rely on experts. So let me ask you what, and not, not the specific information here, but what was the most challenging aspect for you in, in getting the kind of primary source information that, that you felt was uh, sufficient? Um, I don't think anything was particularly technically difficult in that process. It just took a lot of time. Okay. Because it doesn't take uh, it doesn't take someone with a master's in public health to read through an article, uh, look up all the terms they don't know, then read through the article with all those terms in mind, then go to all the then write down every source cited by that article, then pull all of those articles and do it all over again for each of those articles. And that's basically what I did with the CDC's um, their little uh, the science of masking to control COVID article that cites 68 sources. I went through and pulled all of those and pulled the sources cited by those sources and pulled all the other sources they left out. So it's, it's not technically difficult and anyone who can read can do it. Um, if you, if you don't have a background in that literature, it takes longer to get up to speed on the vocabulary, but it's, it's not something that anyone should find particularly intimidating except for the amount of time that it takes to invest in that. So I'm curious, uh, was there ever a time along the way where you were uh, doing your research and your gut told you, yeah, this is accurate or no, this is not accurate. Uh, or did you stick to the, uh, shall we say, the compare and contrast method? Uh, that's my term uh, in terms of uh, processing the information that you were gathering. That's a good question. And I'm not entirely sure exactly when the switchover point for me was because for the first six to 12 months, I just did not, I was not comfortable trying to make the case that masks don't work just because I felt like I hadn't surveyed the literature thoroughly enough. Uh, there were a bunch of moments where I got super excited because I found some some study that um, had had only been mentioned in one or two articles. Or you're going back to the original primary source material, and then you call the medical library on this one university because the National Archive Library of Medicine doesn't have it, but and this journal was out of print for a decade or so. And um, the librarian will send you the infor- will send you the article, and you're just like, oh, hey, this is exciting. Why has this not? Why has this thing been forgotten? <laughs> so, but by the same token, you were going into this research with a conclusion. And so as long as you came up with evidence supporting it, you were great. Yeah. Wh- why am I not guilty of confirmation bias uh-huh. and motivated reasoning and all that other stuff? Well, that's a good question. And, and I would simply say, check the research for yourself. That's why, that's why, I mean, I tried to distill it and simplify it as, as much as I could and kind of lay it out as objectively as possible. Uh, but yeah, anytime you're looking at information from someone there, you're to a certain extent, you're going to be getting what, what they filter and you just, 
hope that um, that in terms of the scientific method that that was designed to try to eliminate as much bias as possible. And one of the things that that I found when I was going through some of the studies that were cited to adduce the adduce the effectiveness of masking that kind of flipped me were actually doing a deep dive into their data and then pulling some additional sources of data and saying and and saying hey wait a minute this isn't actually saying what they're saying it's saying this is actually saying the opposite of what they're saying i'm thinking particularly of van dyke's kansas mask mandate study that was published in the cdc's mwr and the massachusetts general brigham uh, mask study that was published like early on and everyone's like oh this is such a great study it proves that masks work and then when i actually looked at the at the data coming out of kansas uh, which was the kansas mask mandate study and looked at some of the i guess presentational uh, presentational techniques being used to put it charitably uh, it's it was the opposite of what the, of how it was being presented <laughs> i i have to say that one of the um I don't want to say side effects, but one of the other areas that has has troubled me since this all began was the continuing quoting of quote, the quote unquote facts. OK, the statistics yeah. uh, comparing other illnesses and diseases to this. And as people were doing this week after month after now year, years. What really breaks my heart is the fact that in this particular category of the COVID era, which will come to an end, ladies and gentlemen, it will, over, and, and this is just based upon the numbers that we've seen thus far, 700,000 human beings, people we lived and worked and played with, aren't here anymore. And I, I just, I, I just, it's, it's almost as if pff, they weren't people. There was just 700, that's just a number. It's just a number. You know, those are the statistics. We had a uh, hundred thousand people die of, inv I don't know. Again, I'm just throwing out numbers. I don't have any facts here. Okay. So don't, don't quote me For on example, any of this. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically, thank you. Hypothetically speaking, hundred thousand people died of influenza. Uh, 50,000 people died of tuberculosis. Uh, whatever the number is and whatever the disease or disorder, heart disease, la da 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 And it's as if, eh, just numbers. It's like, where in the hell's the humanity? That's what hurts more than anything else is that this has been, this has all been reduced to numbers, statistics, facts, and this is not uh, uh, putting your position and your uh, uh, opinion uh, well, it's more than an opinion based upon the research you've done, uh, uh, notwithstanding, don't get me, you know, I'm not ignoring it or setting it aside, but it's like, where's the, you know, uh, as, as, um, uh, the, the, the reporter watching the Hindenburg fall, the phrase, oh, the humanity of it all. Where's the humanity in all of this? That's a tough question to answer. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and we're just not able to comprehend anything on our individual minds can't comprehend numbers on that scale. And so sometimes you see the humanity in someone who lost their job, yeah. in, uh, in the, the humanity of someone who 
wasn't able to be at a funeral for their parent because of the social distancing measures that were uh, essentially forced on them or on the funeral home. Uh, it's there's there's humanity and losses all across this thing. And it's yeah. it it kind of makes you want to weep, actually. <laughs> That's it for really lack of does. a better word. Not just with the COVID deaths, but with everything that's been that's been going on, and all and all the ancillary side effects of the uh, of the policies designed to combat COVID. Yeah, and well, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, Philip. I know we're uh, running close on time here, uh, and I don't want to cut you off here, but because we're running close on oh, time, thank you. <laughs> I, first of all, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much time, uh, the time that you have given us. I really do appreciate it. I think this was a great conversation. Uh, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not taking sides. Okay. It's like I said at the front end of the program. I don't care. Uh, I will go into a, uh, a shop uh, wearing my mask because they have the right to say no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service. That's their right as a business. Uh, I'll take it off when I walk out. Uh, but I want to thank you for uh, this conversation. It's a very important one, and people need to do their own research. Uh, and uh, before you respond, I want to let you know that I have three very quick questions I want to ask you. But again, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, Richard. This was delightful. I really appreciate being given a hearing. Absolutely. <laughs> Even Absol that's been hard uh, That's to get what this days. program is about, okay? I, I, I do my utmost not to take sides. But what I want to do is encourage people to take their own side and find out. We, we offer choices and knowledge of those choices. And part of that in choices is information. Seek out the information. Do the research that Philip has done. Uh, and uh, please keep listening to Tell Me Your Story. Before we let you go, I'm going to ask you these three questions really quickly here. Uh, you can answer them in any, any way you'd like. Uh, the first of those is, who is... Philip Buckler. I'm a general dentist, DDS degree, <laughs> who happens to have developed a borderline obsession with the efficacy of masks, thanks to all this, and actually spent and actually spent about 1,200 hours researching it. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want people to realize that they do not need to feel guilty for not wearing a mask, and I want them to not feel responsible for things that are beyond their control. And finally, what is your life's purpose? That's a good question. <laughs> if you want the classic theological answer, I'd say it's to, to, to grow as a person and grow in the knowledge of God. If I had to, if I had to um, <laughs> give an off the cuff answer like that, it's my, my purpose in life is um, in a lot of ways, no different at base from everyone else's, I guess. Well, uh, continue on with the work that you're doing to educate the people around you uh, and uh, connected and uh, that are listening to this program. We want people to be educated. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. And I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world, as we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lull.